Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, uh, welcome to another uh, Q&A video here uh, for the Come Follow Me uh, Facebook page. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, get started. We're doing Isaiah chapters this week, uh, 2 Nephi 11 through 25. Uh, really confusing for a lot of people. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not an expert in Isaiah myself. Uh <laughs> I have a hard time. I have to look things up and, and uh, do a lot of uh, research and stuff. So uh, with that in mind, you probably shouldn't trust my answers. No, just kidding. I did a, I did a lot of homework on these, so uh, hopefully they're helpful. Um, but, uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and uh, jump in. Before we do, as always, I just want to remind you that the answers given in this video are not the official opinion of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, obviously. Uh, but they're also not the official opinion of Book of Mormon Central or the Come Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group. Uh, and since they're somewhat off the cuff, they're not even my official opinions. Uh, I reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, should I do more research or should someone point out I'm wrong or whatever the case may be? Uh, and you're, you know, feel free to disagree with me if you think I'm wrong. Um, that's okay. Uh, like I said, I'm definitely not an expert. Uh, so anyway, let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, first question is from Whitney Bennett. He says, we love Isaiah. The language is co very colorful and symbolic. Sometimes I just get carried away with the imagery. What are some of the Jewish customs and traditions that might help me understand Isaiah better? Uh, this is a very uh, broad question. There's a lot uh, that could be said about uh, the uh, culture and customs of ancient Israelites uh, in particular uh, that will help you better understand uh, what's going on in Isaiah. Um, in general, uh, you know, just understanding what daily life is like at that time uh, can go a long way. Um, and for that, you know, there are a lot of uh, like handbooks and things like that that people have published on uh, daily life uh, in uh, biblical times and things like that. Uh, if you're if you're interested in learning more about that, two things I would like to just point out really quickly uh, that might be helpful. Um, he uh, excuse me, two things I'd like to point out really quickly: uh, Hebrew uh, poetic structures, uh, and particularly poetic parallelism. Uh, Isaiah is using lots and lots and lots of poetic parallelism. Uh, most frequently, he's doing things in couplets, which is basically where you just take. Uh, whatever concept or idea it is you want to express, and you just repeat it twice in slightly variant ways. Um, and so uh, it gets confusing or it can bog someone down if they don't understand that's what's going on, because it seems like he's saying something a little bit different, or it seems like he's just say it, repeating himself a lot, and you don't really know why or what's going on. So that's just one thing, just getting familiar with uh, Hebrew poetic structure. Uh, can go a long, long way to helping you as you read Isaiah, just get oriented to what's going on, the flow and the logic of the text and things like that. Uh, and uh, it, it won't answer all your questions, but it'll, it'll help you start to be able to 
make a little bit of sense of the words you're reading on the page, if that makes sense. Um, another thing that I would recommend is getting familiar with uh, the ancient Israelite uh, holy days. Um, uh, most particularly the fall festivals, which included Rosh Hashanah, the new year, uh, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, and Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Um, getting familiar with those holy days and the rituals and the themes associated with those, uh, Isaiah is drawing on that a lot, at least in certain sections, not necessarily all the time, but a lot of sections of Isaiah are drawing on the imagery from those uh, so I would really recommend uh, checking that out, uh, l- learning something about uh, those uh, those uh, Hebrew festivals. Um, that can help uh, just kind of give you some general background for Isaiah. Um, all right, uh, David Day uh, said, theories and scholarship on why I is, well, he's asking about uh, why Isaiah in the Book of Mormon is following the KJV as closely as it is. Uh, Even assuming the early modern English theory for translation, it seems like we would expect a relatively literal translation of the brass plates to have less overlap with the King James Bible unless there is a conscious decision to use a KJV base or starting point so that the differences with the KJV would stand out more. Uh, Insights to be gained from the places where the Book of Mormon does not match the KJV. Uh, Yeah, actually, I think that's exactly what's going on, is that there is a KJV base or King James Version base text here um, that uh, is being used as the base of the translation uh, so that uh, your average person can recognize where it's different. Uh, Now, I should maybe clarify, I think that's what's going on with the more significant differences. There are some very minor, subtle differences that I do kind of think are uh, kind of a translator's preference. Joseph slipped in an extra, you know, Joseph went with two instead of into or something like that. Uh, He made some minor modifications to KJV language here and there just as a translator. Uh, But there are some more significant differences that I assume reflect what's on the brass plates um, or more particularly what's on the plates of Nephi. Um, And those are there uh, precisely so that we, you know, and the rest of the text is read, reads like the KJV precisely so that we can recognize those important differences. Um, and this is actually something a lot of modern translators do. There, there are a few examples of, of it that I can give. Uh, there's a, a scholar, Bruce D. Chilton. He's a, uh, a New Testament, early Jewish scholar. Um, he did a translation of the Isaiah Targum, which is the Aramaic edition of Isaiah. Um, Targum is an Aramaic word for translation. Um, the thing about the Aramaic Targums, though, is they're very loose translations lots of the time. Not all the time. They're actually quite literal sometimes, too. But uh, they're very loose and sometimes very expansive, and they add a lot. Um, And so here's what Bruce Chilton said in doing his English edition of the Isaiah Targum. He said, uh, and this is a direct quote from his introduction, he says, in order to facilitate comparison with the Hebrew text among those who may not be fluent in Hebrew, the Revised Standard Version... Uh, that is the RSV in uh, a modern Bible translation, has been followed as much as possible. Where the RSV offers an acceptable translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic texts, its wording and punctuation, as well as, as well as its division into chapters and verses, have been incorporated. So this is basically a modern scholar saying, here's a different version of Isaiah. I want you to be able to recognize the differences between that and 
and the, the standard version of Isaiah, uh, even if you're not a Hebrew scholar or fluent in Hebrew. So I'm going to use a standard Bible translation, in this case, the RSV, in order for you to be able to compare easily. Um, another scholar who did something like this recently is actually Sean Hopkin, who is a professor at BYU. Um, and he has put together a parallel edition of Isaiah that has uh, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Mormon, uh, and then the standard version of Isaiah, I think, and also the Septuagint, which is the Greek of Isaiah. Um, he put together this parallel version of all these different uh, versions of Isaiah. It's been published as, uh, I think, Opening Isaiah is the name of the book. I didn't put that down in my notes, and I should have. I'm sorry. Uh, but he uh, he did that, and in order to facilitate and help people recognize the differences with the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, he did the same thing. Uh, in fact, because he was publishing for a Latter-day Saint audience specifically, and Latter-day Saints, as you know, are still using the, key, the, the King James Bible primarily, that's what he chose. And um, uh, here's what he said uh, to explain his reasoning for that. He said, we chose to follow the King James Version rendering in the Dead Sea Scrolls columns unless there were variants so that the students of the text could actually identify the real differences between the two versions and not be distracted by differences that were only due to translator choice. So again, this is just another example of a, of a modern translator. Uh, he's writing to Latter-day Saints who he doesn't expect have an ability to read Hebrew or to check the underlying Hebrew text for differences. And so he follows the same kind of convention. Um, and then uh, just one last example. I'm sorry if I'm boring everybody at home here, uh, but I do think this is just important to establish. So this is a pretty standard translator practice. Another, uh, th this is just one last interesting example. It has to do with translating the Book of Mormon into another language. Uh, this is from Felix uh, Minyard, who uh, I'm probably butchering his name because it's, uh, it's uh, spelled M-I-J-N-H-A-R-D. But anyway, he was not a Latter-day Saint, and he was asked to translate uh, the Book of Mormon into Afrikaans. And uh, there's a faith-promoting rumor version of this story uh, that is not true, uh, or at least significantly overstates uh, some of the things he said about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Um, but there is a transcript of what he actually said, and uh, this is a direct quote from his, his, the transcript of, of what he said. Um, this is not the faith-promoting rumor version of events. Um, but he said, when talking about translating the Book of Mormon, he said direct quotation uh, such as from Jeremiah, and I assume he means Isaiah here. Um, he was kind of speaking off the cuff like I am. Um, but he says, direct quotation from Jeremiah, etc., could be rendered directly from the Afrikaans version of the Bible. Uh, and so, again, he's, this is, he's dealing with translating the Book of Mormon into another language, but he's not a Latter-day Saint. He's a professional translator, and he's using the Afrikaans version of the Bible to import the Isaiah chapters and then... Uh, I presume he was making appropriate edits based on the differences there. So again, this is something translators do sometimes. Um, I think it's worth keeping in mind it's a particularly more common practice among inexperienced translators. Um, all of the examples I just gave were, were actually very well-qualified, very experienced translators who were relying on this base text for their audience's sake, primarily. Um, and, and there are reasons to do that, uh, like we just talked about. 
But uh, it's also something, if you're not a very experienced translator, you're more likely to lean on existing translations as you try to translate. And uh, I have you know, my own personal experience with this. Uh, when I was in school, I was studying Latin. And uh, every now and then, we would be assigned a biblical passage to translate from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, now, the base text for the Latin Vulgate is not what the King James translators used. But as soon as I had translated enough to recognize what passage I was translating from, I almost couldn't help but rely on the King James Version of the Bible <laughs> to, uh, as a base text to flesh out my translation because I was so familiar with it. Um, and I, it, it, you know, it just instinctively, I would start going to the King James language because these were usually very recognizable passages ones that I had memorized, the ones in which the King James language just would flow off of my, you know, you know out of my mouth if I, if I were trying to quote it or, or whatever. So, um, so inexperienced translators are more prone to do this kind of thing than really experienced translators. And Joseph Smith, when he's translating the Book of Mormon, this is his first time translating anything. He's an inexperienced translator. And I think that's part of, uh, part of what we need to consider. Now, some may want to point out, I mean, there is the fact that this is a divine translation, and it's hard to say exactly how that changes uh, the dynamic a little bit. Uh, all I can do is draw on my own personal experience and what I can study about the nature of translation, uh, but I also have you know, plenty of personal experience with, with revelation, and it can be pretty interpretive, and it can require work on the part of the person receiving revelation a lot. Um, and so I'm not sure a divine revealed translation is going to be immune to these kinds of issues, let's just say. Um, and we know from like Doctrine and Covenants 124, uh, you know, God says he gives knowledge according to our language and our understanding. An inexperienced translator translating for the first time has less understanding of, well, language than someone who's more experienced. And it's actually interesting because I think we can, if we look at what Joseph Smith does later with his revision of the Bible and then uh, even further down the road, as he gains more experience, uh, he learns Hebrew eventually. Uh, you know, in uh, Kirtland, he goes to the Kirtland uh, um, School of the Prophets. He learns some Hebrew. And uh, we see in some of his uh, revelations and his translations after that, he's a lot more confident departing from the King James language when he gets to, like, the Book of Abraham, for instance. And uh, he, he feels a lot more, um, he feels freer to, to depart from that, uh, that language as he renders his translations and, and, and revelations and things like that. He understands language better. He understands revelation better at this point. And I think, uh, I think you know, his, his understanding um, has expanded. And so God is able to work with that through revelation a little better. And he's more confident in, in rendering his own uh, translations that are more independent from King James language. But when he's translating the Book of Mormon, he doesn't have any of that experience. He doesn't have, he only has the divine revelatory knowledge that he's able to gain about the meaning of the text. He doesn't have any kind of insight from previous, from actually translating like he does later when he's learned Hebrew and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, he's just, he sticks more faithfully to, uh, he, based on this lack of experience, I, I think you can make the case that he, he kind of sticks more faithfully to the King James translation in part because of that. Uh, but that's just, that's pretty, you know, that's all speculation. Um, but it's a possibility. Uh, audience, I think, is really the main factor here. 
Um, in addition to uh, everything we've already talked about, this the audience the Book of Mormon is going to is people who, for one thing, don't have access to the original text on the plates. Uh, most of them are not people who can read uh, Hebrew and will not be able to um, actually <laughs> compare anything against the original Hebrew text of the biblical scrolls and things like that. Uh, and so there were good reasons for his main audience to stick with a base text that they were familiar with and just highlight differences. Um, and in particular also, I mean, the King James Version was the English Bible. Uh, people expected the Book of Mormon, they expected scripture to sound and look biblical. And if he had made a lot of significant changes, if he had translated this really independently and freely of the King James Version, he probably would have gotten even more criticism than he was getting as it was. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of good reasons, whether it's Joseph Smith or whether it's the Lord who's directly responsible for this decision, I think there's a lot of good reasons why sticking faithfully to the King James Version uh, in the Isaiah chapters was probably the smartest move uh, to make in 1830 uh, at the time. Uh, anyway. Thank you for that. That was a good question. Uh, moving on, uh, Rita L. Spencer asked, uh, would it help to make it more understandable to tie Nephi's prophetic timeframes uh, to the relevant sections of Isaiah he uses? And I think what Rita's referring to is uh, this idea called the Nephite prophetic view. And this was actually uh, something that uh, proposed by John W. Welch. You can read about it in, uh, in, our, in the Book of Mormon Central Archive uh, in a paper called Getting Through Isaiah with the Help of the Nephite Prophetic View. Um, what, uh, what Welch actually suggested, and, and well, I really pointed out, was that uh, Nephi's vision in 1 Nephi 11 through 14 has um, four time frames or four phases or stages, if you will. The first one in which is mostly 1 Nephi 11, is the life of Christ and his time and uh, his ministry and things like that. The second one is, um, let's see, uh, oh, it's the scattering of Israel. And uh, it, it covers both the scattering of Israel in the old world, but it also covers scattering of Israel in the new world. Uh, that's 2 Nephi 12, or excuse me, 1 Nephi 12. Um, and then the third stage is uh, called the Day of the Gentiles. It's when the Gentiles uh, are kind of being blessed and, and prospering. And uh, that is 1 Nephi 13. And then the last chapter, 1 Nephi 14, is uh, about the end times and judgment. Um, and uh, what Welch suggested is if you take these four phases and then you look at all the instances where Isaiah is being used in 1 and 2 Nephi and even... I think he even goes into later parts of the Book of Mormon, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but he shows that all these instances where Isaiah is being used, these same four themes are showing up. Um, and uh, they're showing up quite a lot, and they're showing up in the same order. Um, and uh, I think it, I, I, yes, I actually do think that's a very helpful way to look at uh, Isaiah in these chapters. Um, if you go to the Book of Mormon Central Archive and go to that paper and scroll to the end, You'll actually see several charts that will just show you this Isaiah passage applies to this phase, and uh, that can be a way to go through and study these Isaiah chapters, is looking at those different phases. Um, we also have at Book of Mormon Central, if the paper's too long for you, we have a know-why that summarizes uh, this, uh, this point here. 
It's no why number 38, what vision guides Nephi's choice of Isaiah chapters. Uh, and then we also have no whys on each of the individual phases. Uh, if you want to get maybe some more information, more perspective on those, we have uh, no why number 40. How did Nephi read Isaiah as a witness of Christ's coming? We have uh, no why number 42. Why do early Nephite prophets speak about the scattering of the Jews? No why number 44. What is the day of the Gentiles? And no why number 46. What do Nephi and Isaiah say about the end times? So, those no whys kind of provide the abbreviated summary of it. Like I said, you can go to Welch's paper in the archive to get more information and uh, lots and lots of charts that will that kind of classify some of the different passages and things like that. Uh, I do think it can be helpful, and uh, it's especially helpful in helping us understand exactly why Nephi is drawing on these chapters of Isaiah and, and what he sees in them um, and kind of what's going on in 2 Nephi here. Um, all right, uh, next question is from Varden Hadfield. Second uh, Nephi 12, 6, so Isaiah 2, 6 uh, it is the equivalent passage. Uh, Therefore, O Lord, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they replenished from the east and hearkened to, unto soothsayers like the Philistines, and they pleased themselves uh, in the children of strangers. Uh, so two questions uh, from, uh, from Varden in relation to this passage. He asks, who are the soothsayers like the Philistines? Uh, soothsayers is kind of a synonym uh, for like fortune tellers or diviners and things like that. Um, in the region east of Israel uh, where Philistia is and some other uh, foreign uh, peoples, uh, you know, and really all throughout the ancient Near East, you know, diviners, soothsayers, fortune tellers, things like that are just very, very common. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're doing all kinds of, you know, astrology and all kinds of different things to try and divine the will of the gods and things like that. And so he's, um, he's basically accusing the people of Israel for ha uh, of going after fortune telling and, and, uh, you know, this kind of, these kind of divination sorts of practices to try and learn the will of the gods rather than trusting in uh, Jehovah and his prophets, trusting in the Lord and his prophets. Um, second question is, what is it to please themselves in the children of strangers and who are the strangers? Um, uh, idiomatically, that's not a great way to translate that today. It, it sounds like something really different from what it really is talking about. It's actually just talking about forming alliances with foreign powers. Uh, strangers is just foreigners. It can be, you know, any foreign power outside of Israel and Judah. And uh, they're, you know, the Lord is upset with them for forming these alliances with these foreign powers, again, rather than trusting on, relying on his own strength. Um, all right, uh, Tyler Heasley uh, asked a question in relation to 2 Nephi 15, uh, 29 through 30. So that's Isaiah 5, 29 through 30. Um, he says, this chapter covers a lot of ground. If the chapter summary is correct, verses 26 through 28 seems to wrap up with the gathering of Israel. But do verses 29 through 30 also speak of the gathering? If so, what is the prey and why is it carried away safely? And why is the prey being roared against in verse 30? 
It is, um, is this a metaphor for non-Israelite worldly peoples being destroyed during the second coming? And does the end of verse 30 allude to the silence in heaven for the space of half an hour, or am I misreading these two verses? So uh, when I went to look at uh, everything in, uh, in 2 Nephi 15 or Isaiah 5 uh, in full context, um, to me it actually seems like verses 26 through 30 is referring to an enemy army that's rapidly approaching to destroy the people of Israel. Uh, this does not strike me as a positive symbol at all. Um, historically speaking, the most likely candidate for this foe would be Assyria. Uh, but, uh, you know, verse 25 just got done. The Lord's saying that his wrath is upon the people. Um, and so he's going to raise up an ensign, a standard. This is just a, a, a flag. The ensign is later used as a more positive uh, symbol, and we have appropriated it a lot for, you know, the rallying of, you know, God's people uh in the latter days with the Book of Mormon being the ensign to the nation and things like that. But in this context, it's talking about the ensign of a foreign people, an enemy that's actually coming to destroy Israel. Um, at least that's that strikes me as the most likely reading. Uh, and based on that thing, the prey is actually Israel. And uh, the darkness of in the heavens and things like that in verse 30 is referring to either the results of the destruction with the fires burning and things like that, um, the dust from the army being kicked up and, and, and stuff kind of blocking out the sun, or it could maybe metaphorically be conveying uh, the idea that, that the heavens are dark um, because God is not coming. This is their punishment. God is not coming to save Israel in, in this case. Um, bleak and, and unfortunate uh, as that is, there are parts of Isaiah that are like that. We're talking about judgment and condemnation and punishment uh, in many parts of Isaiah. Uh, and then he later kind of comes around to talking about the restoration and uh, gathering and things like that. Um, there are some who have, uh, who have argued that this is at least maybe typologically also referring to the last days and the gathering of Israel here. Um, Victor Ludlow in his book, um, I didn't put it in my notes, I should have, I'm blanking on the name, uh, but he has a book on Isaiah, he suggests that it's both the historical uh, enemy of Israel coming to destroy them, but also typologically, metaphorically, and uh, prophetically speaking of the time when Israel itself will be gathered as an army in its own land and uh, and will be restored. Um. All right, Israel Gonzalez asked, what are some possible reasons for the mistake in the 1829 version? Uh, and actually, it's, it's in today's version too. It, it continues uh, from the earliest manuscripts to, the, to this day, but uh, where we read Red Sea in 2 Nephi 19, 20, uh, 19 verse 1. If it was a scribal error, are there other known errors uh, like this in the, um, in the Book of Mormon? Um, so for those who don't know, in Isaiah 9.1, it says there's this phrase, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, um, and it's most likely referring to the Sea of Galilee. That's the sea that's beyond Jordan in Galilee. Um, in the Book of Mormon version, in 2 Nephi 19, it modifies this phrase to say, by the way of the Red Sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, and this is confusing because the Red Sea is not beyond Jordan in Galilee. 
So uh, what could this be talking to, talking about, or why was this modification made? Um, and uh, different uh, people have suggested different things. John Tevetnis, uh, a, a very good uh, Book of Mormon scholar and Latter-day Saint scholar of the Old Testament and things like that, uh, who recently, I guess it's been a few years, but he passed away a few years ago, but he had actually suggested this was a scribal error on the part of Oliver Cowdery because of the repeated references to Red Sea in 1 Nephi. Just as a scribe, he got used to uh, slipping in, uh, writing Red Sea, and so when Joseph dictated by the way of the sea, he just slipped in the word red. That's possible. Um, Royal Skousen, who has been doing the research on the text, uh, all the textual variants of the Book of Mormon and and working on the critical text project for the Book of Mormon, he has um, he's an, analyzed this, and you can look anything up uh, as far as his thoughts go. Will be seen in the analysis of textual variants. It's a six volume set uh, published at BYU, um, and it's available online for free. The first edition is anyway. There's a second edition uh, that's not available online, but the first edition is available online for free at the interpreterfoundation.org. Um, you can you can look this up there if you'd like. Uh, but uh, he suggested that it was not a scribal error on the part of uh, Oliver Cowdery, but that it was on the original plates uh, that they translated, and it was actually a scribal error on the brass plates. Um, that's also a possibility. Ancient scribes made mistakes. That happened. Um, and uh, while we're considering that kind of possibility, we may as well consider the possibility that Nephi uh, made the mistake as he copied from the brass plates to the gold plates. Um, again, these kinds of little scribal slip-ups happen, um, and uh, it very well could have happened anywhere along the line. Um, another possibility is, honestly, it could have been a slip-up by Joseph Smith as he's dictating the text. Uh, the text he had uh, on his translation device, on his, you know, the Urimum Thummim or the Seer, or the seer Stone, it may very well have been, by the way, of the sea beyond Jordan, and he slipped up and slipped in Red Sea uh, there. I don't know. I don't know exactly where it came from. I uh, I haven't seen anyone try to argue or make a historical case for uh, the Red Sea being the proper interpretation. Like I said, it is the Red Sea is not beyond Jordan and Galilee. Um, so uh, it, it's an interesting little... Uh, Error, I don't know uh, what the origin of it is. Um, uh, any of those possibilities is uh, is likely. As far as other examples of that in the Book of Mormon, I don't, uh, I'm afraid I don't have anything off the top of my head. Um, all right, uh, so Michael Christensen asked a question. Uh, Am I correct in thinking that the prophecy of Isaiah in 2 Nephi 20 through, uh, in 2 Nephi 20, 24 through 26, so that's Isaiah 10, um, 24 through 26, uh, likening the fate of the Assyrian army to that of the slaughter of Midian refers to the story of Gideon as recorded in Judges 6 through 7. Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, at least that's the only interpretation uh, I've seen from, uh, from the historical uh, context. Um, also from Michael Christensen, uh, is the anointing in 2 Nephi 20, verse 27, to be understood as a reference to the anointed one, i.e. the Messiah or Christ? 
Um, this is a little bit more of a complicated question because this is a little bit of a complicated passage. Its textual history is, well, I don't know about its textual history, but it's, um, it's actually a very challenging passage here to translate, this phrase that, uh, that you're referring to. Um, so just for those who are listening, uh, the King James Version and the Book of Mormon both have, the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. And that's the last phrase of, uh, of verse 27 in Isaiah 10 or 2 Nephi 27, 10. Or, excuse me, 2 Nephi 20, verse 27. Um, the, the term translated as anointed is shemen. And uh, it means oil or fat or grease, something like that. Um, and so the idea of anointing is the anointing oil. And, and so the King James translators interpreted this reference to oil to the anointing oil, and thus the anointing is, uh, is what they come up with. Um, a literal translation from the Hebrew, according to Robert Alter at least, is uh, the phrase yoke from oil. And most translators don't think that makes very much sense. And so they, uh, they come up with different things, like the King James translators with uh, the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Uh, most modern translators opt for fat or fatness here. Um, so, uh, and the exact implications of that translation depends on the rest of the, the way they translate the phrase. Just some examples. The ESV has, uh, the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Okay. Or uh, this is from the Jewish Publication Society uh, um, Hebrew Bible. The yoke will be broken because of fatness. Um, the New International Version has the yoke will be broken because you have grown so fat. So um, and a, a similar one from the New English Translation is the yoke will be taken off because, uh, excuse me, the yoke will be taken off because your neck will be too large. Okay. Uh, the idea almost seems to be with some of these translations that basically uh, the person yoked will get too fat that the yoke will burst off. And uh, <laughs> it, seems, it seems like a really funny image. I'm not going to lie. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, if we're trying to understand what's going on here, uh, those of us who live in the more developed world in the 21st century, we're kind of prone to uh, see fat as a bad thing. When we think of someone who's fat and fat enough to burst off a yoke, we're imagining someone really obese, right? And uh, that's because we have obesity problems in, uh, in the U.S. and a lot of the Western world. We have this issue. This is not an issue for most of world history. Most of world history, there is not enough abundance for the level of obesity and fatness that we experience uh, in the developed world today. Um, and so instead of fat referring to kind of this negative, unhealthy connotation, fat actually usually had a healthy connotation in, uh, in the ancient world. You were not skinny um, and really emaciated and things like that. You were well-fed, you were healthy, robust, taken care of. And so this idea, if we are to accept this translation uh, about it being broken off because of the fat, it's kind of referring to how robust and strong and healthy uh, Israel had become 
and thus they're able to burst from their yoke. Um, other translators um, have said, you know what, this phrase just doesn't make sense. We're going to provide a conjectural emendation of what it says. Um, and uh, that's what, for example, the, uh, the Revised Standard Version translators or uh, the New Revised Standard Version translators decided to do. And uh, they have, uh, for this phrase, he has gone up from Ramon. Totally different implication. I don't even know. Uh, I didn't check to see where Ramon was and, and what that might mean. But uh, again, they, they're just modifying the Hebrew because they think the Hebrew as it stands doesn't make sense. Um, Robert Alter does the same thing. Like I said, his literal translation was yoke from oil, but in it, you know, he's commenting on that and saying that doesn't make sense. And so he kind of uh, alters it a little bit and, and uh, he thinks uh, the translation should be, he shall come up from the desert. Again, uh, those are just some different possibilities. Um, after um, just the brief uh, exploration I've been able to do here uh, in, in preparation for this, I'm not really convinced that any of the translators know exactly what this phrase means. And uh, the idea that it could be referring to anointing certainly seems possible, anointing oil. And there were some modern translations, I didn't read from any of them, but there were some modern translations that still carry the anointing uh, translation, though none of them are um, as mainstream uh, and widely accepted as the examples I gave here. Uh, this is just kind of my long way of saying, I don't know. I don't know what this phrase means because we don't, uh, we can't even get a good, solid, universally agreed on translation. If we are going to uh, follow the King James translation with the anointing or the anointing oil, then uh, I absolutely think uh, an allusion to uh, the Messiah, uh, both in terms of Jesus Christ in the future, but also in terms of uh, the Davidic king and the the concept of the Davidic king more broadly and and thus whoever is king at any given time and, and prepared to rule over Israel. I think allusion to that is absolutely possible here. Um, but, uh, but like I said, it's, a, it's kind of a cryptic phrase in Hebrew, and so scholars are a little bit all over the place as to what's going on here. Um, all right, uh, that is actually uh, everything I had uh, for today. I, uh, there were a couple more questions I wasn't able to get to, I didn't have time for, but uh, I want to just thank everyone again for the questions they asked. We, I hope this was helpful and informative. I hope you're getting through Isaiah okay, and uh, we will see you guys next week. Uh, one thing I actually did want to, if you've made it this far, uh, I wanted to kind of uh, get some feedback from everybody, and uh, if you guys want to let me know in the comments what you think, uh, Xander, of I, uh, excuse me, Xander and I have been talking about possibly putting out the call of questions a day or two earlier. I've usually been putting it out on Tuesday, but maybe putting it out on Monday, and, uh, and then trying to also do this video on maybe Wednesday or maybe Thursday, just trying to get it out a little earlier in the week. We're wondering what you guys would think about that, if you think that'd be more helpful uh, for your studying or whether it matters to you at all. Um, please let us know in the comments below. And uh, yeah, hope you have a good Friday.